Hello, and we are the makers of history. With me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello, everybody. And welcome to season two. First Ooh. time we've done a season two, because obviously, chronologically, the first one was the first season. How's it <laughs> make you feel, Ross? I feel like we're a success. We've made it. Yeah, we're we're official internet celebrities now. You know. Yeah, you know. VIP got... passes. Yeah. <laughs> Free dine, wine and dine nights at the local restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, so we're on to a new topic. Um, thank you to everyone who had listened to the first season and you're coming back for the next one. I don't know, if, do you call it a season or a series? I'm not sure. I've, I feel... Mm, series, I think. Yeah, okay, so series two. Um, so it's a new topic that we're going to be going into. And that is what exactly, Ross? What is our new topic? Oh no, f- f- forget about the topic, bruv. Hey, Ben, sorry. Hey, Ben. Yeah, no, I've been good. I, you know, I was part of a cultural moment yesterday. Oh, I God, did. That sounds serious. Yeah, I did. Barbenheimer. Okay, you're gonna have to explain. You said that like really yeah, proudly, okay. and like, your hand you... actions. You, yeah, um, man, you went out wide. How, how are you the one person in the world that doesn't? You know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, the two big films of this year. Yeah, but what did you call it? Barbenheimer, it's a thing. Like, oh, is you, it? Yeah, the two together. Oh, so I saw it as a, as a double bill. Okay. There was, but actually both of them really good. You know what? It's funny you say that, because the missus said to me yesterday, do you want to go watch that Oppenheimer? And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, I do actually. So she looked at the tickets, but they were like 20 quid. Ooh. Ooh, they were the, like the premium seats at the back, but they're just comfortable seats, not the riff raffy seats. Um, so obviously have... that costs more, and it's in IMAX. I was going to say, is it IMAX? Because it's definitely worth seeing in IMAX. I wish I had seen it in IMAX. Uh, so, yeah. I sort of was like, I don't know, 20 quid seems a lot. But now you've said uh, that, I regret that. It's good. It's completely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, we'll have to go see it this weekend then. Let us know what you think. Mm. So what are you drinking then? What you got on the menu? I got a new one today. Ooh. I have got a Yezhek. Ooh. I like You've ordering this. have before, haven't you, Yezhek? Uh, not while we're doing this. I like ordering this because Yezhek means hedgehog. Okay. In Czech. So I was just having myself a nice pint of hedgehog. I swear we've got a beer over here called hedgehog. Probably like some sort of like, you know, crusty ale. Yeah. That you can only buy in Crusty like one ale. Ales are lovely. What's <laughs> your problem? When you order an ale, it comes with its own pair of sandals. <laughs> Do like an ale. Where have you been anyway? I've been alright, mate. Not too bad. It's Monday, so obviously Monday at work. It's never a good day, is it? I've dragged. <laughs> Um, but yeah, generally I've been okay, mate. Not too much going on. The house extension's still rattling on. I'm having an extension to my house, so if one is listening, and that's just the back of the house basically doesn't exist anymore uh, <laughs> because we're supposed to be extending it. But right now I'm just like, oh, there's a big hole in the back of my house. Like, that's concerning. So yeah, if any burglars are listening. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. Uh, I am also on. Uh, today's sponsor, Dragon Soup. No, we're not really sponsored by Dragon Soup, but we should be. We should be. Um, I think we, I think we are going to try and <laughs> see if they'll do it. Yeah, Dragon Soup, are you listening? 
I'll have I'll have a few great greats, and we'll keep mentioning yeah about that. Feels like a deal. <laughs> we won't talk about that girl in Scotland that went to hospital because she drank some beer. Yeah, well, it was your reaction <laughs> to what I said earlier, man. <laughs> to be honest, that sums it up quite nicely, doesn't it? Ross went on to tell me how Dragon Soup is this story about a girl who ends up in hospital and, just, and he said it's not good for you and I went no it's definitely not good for you <laughs> that's that's my one takeaway from drinking dragon soup is it's definitely not good for you the vast like amount of alcohol or the vast amount of caffeine in it it's not good for you but for a man who can't drink wheat because it makes him poorly uh, you know what I mean there's not many options there's only so much Guinness a man can take there's only so much cider a man can take until you get to the hard stuff and the dragon soup comes out there's a very specific demographic and dragon soup have nailed it yeah the, <laughs> the fossils of the world <laughs> but yeah it doesn't even taste that great to be honest <laughs> <laughs> no it does I like it most people say it tastes horrible but I genuinely do like it that's what I'm drinking it <laughs> But there we go. Oh. Mm. Uh, I had a full of mouth of beer then. I think I've just inhaled about half of it. <laughs> That's going to show up on x-rays in about 20 years time. So, bruv. Yeah. What are we going to talk about? What is the whole so, season about? What is what is the mm-hmm. Sora? Explain. So what we're going to do is we're going to do something quite different to the ancient stuff we've been looking at. We're going to move to something distinctly more modern. Um... And as is the way with all history-related content, we have ended up with World War Two. Specifically, we're going to look at the uh, what we're calling the Nazi war machine. So what we're going to try and answer is two questions. How did Nazi Germany sustain its war effort, and why did they fight? But we're going to talk about all the cool stuff as well, aren't we? Like the tanks and the machine guns and the grenades. Yeah, we're going to do some of that. We're going to look at like the way that they... they they were able to sustain the war, so like their war economy and their ideology. Why did they? Why did they keep fighting in the face of like you know insurmountable odds? And how did they keep this war going for seven years? We're not going to go too much into like battles or generals or so on. There's a whole whole host of podcasts that do that. So we're going to look specifically for the economics and the ideology, nice. the how and why of how they fought. So yeah. So what? With that, just a couple of uh, disclaimers up front to just kind of get it out. We are going to be talking during this series about the way that the Nazis weaponized their economy into a, into a tool of genocide. So it's a bit of a content warning for people going forward. I will mention in the future when we're going to discuss anything particularly disturbing and unpleasant. Um, obviously, we'll try and treat that as respectfully as we can. Um, but yeah, consider that a bit of a content warning for the future. Yeah, listen up, you. Like, if you can't handle it, if you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> That's what the chef used to tell me <laughs> when I used to work. So, um, that's my takeaway second... from that. The... Yeah, thank you for that respectful handling of that content <laughs> warning. <laughs> Please continue. The second thing I want to mention is, as part of this series, we are going to be quoting Hitler and other top Nazis. Obviously, we're not doing this because we agree with or endorse. Obviously, their beliefs are fucking horrific. But it's important sometimes to put the words of the people in the context to 
emphasise why they're behaving in the way they are. Yeah, if, talk... of all the people in the world, you know, Nazis aren't one people are going to follow, I don't think, in this day and age, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think they've got many supporters knocking about. <laughs> be interesting, maybe we can have one on if we ever found one, but oh, I don't think you would. <laughs> I don't think you find any human beings alive at the moment that uh, hit the supporters. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, like any quotation is not an endorsement. Any explanations Certainly of Nazi-ology, not. not an endorsement or justification. We're just trying to explain what they believed. Because if we explain what they believed, doesn't mean that we believe that. Does definitely doesn't. We may make light of it, but it's you know, we definitely don't believe any of that nonsense. So, with that out of the way, then so let's get into the meat of today and what one start with is how do we end up with Hitler? How does Hitler come to power? So, where we're going to start our story is in 1918-1919. Is this when he was just a small, moustached, wielding boy in the, like, the Alps of the wherever he's from? Well, at this point, in 1918-1919, he is recovering in hospital from having been gassed. Oh, no, nice. um, he gassed him. Uh, I think the British Army did. Yeah, good lads. <laughs> in the trenches of World War One, and he was actually recovering in hospital when he found out that Germany had been defeated. So this is our kind of start point. Is Obviously, the First World War happens, which is the biggest, the most destructive war up to that time. Germany and its ally, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire, are defeated, and the... You know, the victorious powers sit down with the Germans at the Treaty of Versailles and they draw up what the future of Europe's going to look like. I've heard this is what they blame it on. So, yeah, this is the thing that comes up a lot. Is people will say, Versailles was so harsh, World War II was inevitable. I am going to call bullshit on that. If you want to look at harsh, look at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So in 1917, the Russian Empire, uh, sorry, not the Russian Empire, um, Russia, after the revolution, surrenders to Germany. And Germany takes away, like, huge amounts of land, like, all of um, the western part of the former Russian Empire, like, what is now Ukraine, Poland, uh, the Baltic states, Belarus. This is taken away from Russia, a huge part of its territory, uh, huge uh, reparations costs are inflicted on it. Versailles, Germany loses basically the borderlands of the German Empire where for the most part Germans are not a majority of the population. So they lose a chunk of land along the French border, they lose a chunk of land to the newly recreated Poland and they lose a little sliver to Denmark. So the land loss is not... they lose land but it's not super serious. It's not comparable to Hungary which loses two thirds of its territory for example. Financially though? There are reparations put on the Germans. They have to pay for the damage. But the payments inflicted on the Germans are less than the value of the damage they have done to France and Germany. The war, remember, has been fought in France and in Germany. Uh, in Belgium, sorry. Not Germany. It's been fought in France and Belgium. The damage that has been done is specifically in the industrial region of France in the northeast. It is across industrial Belgium. Belgium going into World War One was one of the wealthiest countries in the world and it never recovered its position from the damage that the Germans did to the Belgian economy. So that reparations, makes sense. yeah, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, like, you know, <laughs> that's like, oh, poor old Germany, like, or anything. 
But it's just that's the argument you often hear, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, of course. Definitely. People were, even at the time, people were making that argument. Like a famous economist named John, John Maynard Keynes was making that case in the 20s. But okay. it doesn't really stand up. And the Germans ultimately... It doesn't seem would, like he does from there. Yeah. From, already from your explanation. And they got very light treatment in terms of getting that money out of them. Ultimately, they would pay something like $21 billion over 20 years, which is not that much. By their talking, standards at the time, it probably was. Even by the standards of the time, it's not that much. Okay. Now, that isn't to say that the German economy did not go off the cliff in the 20s. It did. But the reason it did that is not because of Versailles. The kind of the original sin that creates Germany's huge debt is the way that the German Empire fought World War One. So, you know, the Allied powers, France and Britain, they you know, raised taxes and all of this other stuff. Germany did not raise taxes to pay for the war. The only way they paid for it was by borrowing money. And they borrowed money on the assumption that they were going to win, they were going to annex everybody else's territory, take all their industry, and they were going to stick the cost of the war onto the defeated countries like Britain, France, and Russia. Yeah. So Imperial Germany did nothing about paying for itself to fight the war, and the whole intention was to strip the money if they won. Which also tells you what the peace treaty would have been like if it had been on the other boot, on the other foot. Like. Mm. So... The Allies imposed reparations on the Germans. And the way that the Germans decided to respond to that after their revolution, they had this kind of very controlled revolution. The Kaiser was removed, but the same people stayed in power. and Nothing really changed. It just went from monarchy to republic, but the structure of the country didn't really change that much. It's not like Russia or the French Revolution where like you know the elites are being dragged out in the street. It's not like that at all. It's just like, more or less like a coup at the top level. Okay. Um, and yeah, the German army let this happen because they wanted the Socialist Party to take the blame for defeat. So, the response then to the how they're going to pay reparations was print more money. Printing money is never a good idea to save an economy. I learnt this lesson when, how old were we when you gave me that Zimbabwean dollar? That was, uh, I learnt a lesson from that. A few years ago. It was while yeah. ago, it was a long time ago, weren't it? Like you sent me a Zimbabwean dollar. Well, it was like five trillion Zimbabwe <laughs> dollar note in one note. I can't. I don't know if you gave it. Did you post it to me or did you give it to me? I uh, posted it to you the yeah, birthday card. Posted it to me the birthday card. Yeah, we must have been about like twenty. About twenty-five. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, twenty-three, twenty-four, somewhere around there, anyway. And uh, I was like, "How's this? This can't be real." And you said it was, so I like yeah. googled it, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is real money!" <laughs> like this because they just kept printing money. Yeah. So you this... get one note, and it was actually worth at the time like three pound fifty. Yeah. Five hundred. What was it? Five hundred trillion dollar was it? It was something like five hundred trillion. It's the single biggest denomination banknote ever. And the reason I could send it to you is because they were having it printed in, I think, Lithuania. And literally, in the time it was being printed, the value of the money fell so much it became worth less than the paper. So the printers just impounded it and sold it. No way. Yeah. So this is what Germany started doing. They just started printing money, not backed by anything, and obviously their own money began to lose value because they're inflating, they're increasing the supply of money. In 1921, 
eventually the German government refused to pay any more reparations. So this is only three years after the most destructive war that had ever been in Europe at this time. And in blatant breach of the Treaty of Versailles, which was only signed two years before. The French and the Belgians are not having this, so they send in their armies and they occupy an area of Germany called the Ruhr. So if you think of where, like, uh, you think of the shape of Germany today, and basically up the left side of Germany, you have, like, the Rhine River, which goes along the border and comes out in the Netherlands. And there's a kind of tributary river called the Ruhr, and this is where Germany's coal fields and uh, iron mines are. Just it's a strategic place to tie them yes. in. The industrial heart of Germany. So the French and the Belgian, Belgians occupy it. They invite the British to take part, the British refuse. But the French Prime Minister, uh, a guy named Raymond Pancaré, points out that if you let Germany defy the treaty two years into it existing, you are just going to lead to war. Because you're setting the precedent that if Germany pushes, we back down. So there has to be a response, there has to be a punishment for them doing this. So they send in the army and they occupy the industrial heart of Germany. Sounds very familiar with what happened uh, at the height of the war as well, or just before the war, you know. Yeah. Give them too much and they'll keep going. Exactly. Poincaré was dead right. He said, if you don't enforce the peace, you will have another war. Yeah. So, in response to this, the German government in Berlin calls a general strike uh, to deny France the value of the area. So, the idea being that the factories don't keep running and the French can't just take the material home as like payment in kind. But the German government is also paying its workers to stay at home. It's not like, you know, normally you go on strike, you're, you're not getting paid. The government is paying them to be on strike, which means more money printing while the economy is shut down. Uh... The inflation gets worse. Also, just then I said the German government in Berlin. That's not true. The German government sits in a city called Weimar, which is a small spa town. I've reason... never even heard of that before. So this period of the German government is called the Weimar Republic. And the reason the government sits in Weimar is because the country and Berlin itself are so unstable that they can't safely govern from Berlin. <laughs> Germany is racked. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's racked with different armed groups. There are communists uh, rising up. There was a big revolution attempt in 1919 called the Spartacist Rising. And they're a right-wing ex-soldiers called the Freikorps. How have I never heard of this before? Uh, it's not that well known, I think. But yeah, so you have like ongoing street battles between Freikorps and communists, and the liberal democratic groups form the Iron Front and the Red God Red rah, Red Black Gold movement to defend the democracy. So all of the different groups are fighting in the streets. Um, German governments would become quite dependent on the Freikorps. So the Freikorps are a mixture of like veterans and also men who were too young to fight in the trenches who then feel like this social pressure to that they missed out on the war so they become very right-wing and very violent. Anyway, so the government sits in Weimar and they're paying people not to go to work, the economy is shut down and inflation begins to go out of control. So, at, in 1914, the German currency is called the Reichsmark, right? And in 1914, one US dollar got you four Reichsmarks. So, I would like you to have a guess. How many Reichsmarks did you get for one dollar in 1924? So, after all of this chaos. 
one dial. I, I think I'd, I saw this somewhere, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> I know it was a he- I know it was a crazy amount. Yeah, it's one dollar in nineteen twenty four bought you four trillion two hundred and ten billion. No, yeah, four point two trillion Reichsmarks. It's a lot of Reichsmarks. Yeah, there's famous pictures in nineteen twenty three of people like using the Reichsmarks as fuel because they were worth less than anything you could buy with them. Yeah. So, the German economy completely collapses because of this. But again, it's not the side that's caused this. The efforts of the German government to avoid paying reparations for a war that they started in 1914. Yeah. Hang on, is there a different government there? It's, I mean, it's... And really, the people are paying for it, aren't they? The people are the ones suffering, but again, like there was mass enthusiasm for the World War, and the German government thought they'd been very clever that they were going to pass off this cost to everybody else. And you know the same military leaders. I mean, even the same. Obviously, the, in the German Empire, the parliament wasn't powerful, but it's the same biggest party then is the governing party now, the Social Democratic <laughs> Party. So I mean, like Germany has a revolution, but it's not. It's not a real revolution. It's yeah. it's a shuffling of deck chairs. So eventually Germany's economy has completely gone off the cliff and the Americans have to step in to stop Germany completely imploding. Obviously the French aren't interested in doing it. Uh, you know, France and Britain are also recovering from war. They've been badly affected. The only people that can step into the situation are the Americans. They've emerged from World War One suddenly as like a global power. Um... And now they have to be the ones to hold Europe together. So what the Americans did is they helped to restructure Germany's debt. Um, and it was also a market that, you know, not from like an altruistic point of view, from a corporate point of view, a market's very attractive for American banks to lend. Nobody in Germany has any savings because they've just all been wiped out by the inflation. So American business is very interested in getting into Germany and lending to people. Yeah, that makes sense, to be fair. Why was it only America that were interested in doing that? They're the only ones who had the money. Ah, because they're the only ones that weren't really involved in World War I. Yeah, they, were, they only joined, in, yeah, they only joined in 1917. Everyone else had been devastated by the war. That's interesting, then, if you think. like That was the emergence of America, then, post-World definitely, War I. Definitely, yes. Do you think that might have been because Europe was so financially behind them? Because of the war. Yeah, I mean, it's like thing, a lot of things going into it. It's like America's industry was growing rapidly. It's like Europe's economies were all shattered. A lot of European countries like broke apart or had revolutions and so on. Even countries like Britain, which weren't touched by the fighting, they still had to sustain this huge effort. It's really hard to understand how big of an effort it was. Well, it's uh, like the Russians, like they had the Russian system in World War One, like they did World War Two, didn't they? And yes. That's a living memory for us. Like our, all our grandparents talking about what it was like when you were on rations. Like they had nothing. Well, like, to put it in so like, little like, food. And it, also, like the demand of like keeping the army fed and fighting. Like the, the British Army in World War One, I, I think, is bigger than the British Army in World War Two. And also, you think like the British Army in World War Two, it's fighting in Europe, basically, nineteen forty-four into the spring of 1945, right? So basically one year. In World War One, the British Army is kept in the field fighting at full strength for four years. The amount of, like, actual combat fighting the British are doing in the World War One is greater than World War Two. 
Britain is the only major power that loses more people in the First World War than the Second. Okay. Jeez. Anyway, though, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. So let's bring it back then to... Uh, well, 1924. So, the Americans set up a system for the Germans. Basically, German businesses, German people can borrow from the United States and the, the German government is borrowing from the United States and using that money to pay the British and the French who they owe reparations to, right? Hang on. So they're borrowing the money? Yeah, okay. So they're borrowing from pay, it's pay Paul then, yeah. Exactly, yeah. From so they America, borrow off the Americans. Pay off the British and the French job. Okay. Yeah. And the so Americans have got to know about that, surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Americans know what's happening. Like, everyone's happy with this arrangement. The Americans, like, you know, they're getting into this... German market, which is wide open for them. For the Germans, they're borrowing at super low rates because the you know the market's completely collapsed in Germany. They're rebuilding from scratch, and the British and French don't care where the money's coming from. So it's everybody's happy. And it's also good for Britain and France that they're getting cash in their pocket because the alternative would be that they take payment in kind, right? So they would take goods and items from Germany. Yeah. Which would mean German products flooding their markets, which is not good for their own industry, right? If you're getting payment in German telephones, let's say, that's not good for British Telephone Corporation. So everybody's kind of happy with this arrangement. Then it gets better because Britain and France had financed their war by borrowing money from the US, which means they took the money that the Germans were giving them and paid it back to the Americans. Scam artists, what the hell, man? <laughs> That's kind of it. But it means everyone's kind of happy with the system. Everyone's comfortable how it's working. Reparations flow to Germany. Uh, sorry, the the loans flow to Germany. The reparations flow to the UK and France. And then the US expect them to pay their war debt. Everybody's happy. Oh, America's making the most money out of that, though, because yeah, they're selling the it's... loan and getting the money back. Yeah, it's working out very nicely for the Americans. Cheeky scamps. Germany in the 1920s, their government realises they can use this to their advantage. So their policy became to borrow so much money from the Americans that the interest payments on the loans to the Americans would not leave any money available to pay the British and French. The Americans would be, you know, totally leveraged on German investments by investing so much in there that if they allowed the German economy to collapse, it would cause a bank collapse back in America. So the idea for the Germans, it's kind of like, you know, like a, it's like a boxer clinching, like grip so tight to the US that they can't let them fall down, you know what I mean? Like, taking the money in, take so much debt that all of their cash goes into paying back off just the interest. That's if, smart. That is proper smart thinking, exactly. to be fair, isn't it? Is this definitely like what they thought, or is this just a theory? Definitely no. This is this is deliberate well documented strategy from Germany. That's amazing. That's so well thought out. Yep. And it's, then it's pit fucking savage, like, but it's well yeah, it's out. very cynical, <laughs> very very cynical. Like, it's one thing to keep in mind. Like, when people talk about Weimar Republic, there's some TV shows and films about it, and they tend to be like about how cool and great it was, this democracy, and there's, like, cool jazz and stuff in Berlin and all these cool artists. (laughs) But the policy goals were still very, like, imperialistic, and they were very cynical. Okay. Um, 
I know next to nothing about the Weimar Republic, to be honest, until, you know, really mm. World War Two. Yeah, I think, like, when people do know about it, they have a very idealised picture of this cool liberal society that Hitler swept away. But you should oh, not be taking... That does not sound like the case. Yeah, no, you should not be, like... People are like, oh, the art and stuff's so cool. Yeah, it is, but, like, the whole system was... There was no, like, feeling anyone would have done anything bad with the war or anything. It was just, okay, how are we going to con out of getting and getting punished for this? Yeah. And they also relied on the fact that the Americans their desire to protect their investments would mean that the Americans would stop the British and French from, you know, taking action to get their money back if the payments stopped. So it's not going to be a repeat of 1921 with the French army marching in because the Americans will stop them doing it. Because the American Sort of felt like the Americans were playing against us here a little bit. Or as the the Germans have realised they can use the US as a lever... So by but getting so... should re- uh, America should have reacted to that, surely, as an ally. Also, after World War One, America goes into what's called isolationism, where they become disinterested and not engaged with the world. So one of the things okay. that came out of World War One is a thing called the League of Nations, which is like a pre-run yeah, of yeah, the UN. And, and, yeah, I've heard of these guys before. The League of Nations was fundamentally crippled because the Americans never joined. So uh... immediately after World War One the US just wanted to stay home. Okay. I can understand that. I can understand that from the Americans' point of view at the time as well, because they were like, well, this is a far-off land, like, why are we... Yeah, yeah. nothing to do with us. Yeah. We left you know, there. Now... <laughs> we left yeah, there yeah, to no, exactly. set up here, so I can sort of understand that. I think it's kind of a thing people forget, is like, because now we're used to European democracies and the US, we're very ideologically similar, but in them days, it wasn't like that. Yeah. We're very different from them. Well, so, we were still like full-blown monarchy, weren't we? Especially exactly, in imperialism. It was, like, it was the British Empire. Exactly. Which is, uh, you know, very, very different to what we have today. Exactly. And also, you know, the French Republic, also huge empire. Which, you know, Americans object to on, like, a fundamental level. Yeah. So, Germany's strategy, then, is to team up with the Americans, and they use that to break apart the wartime alliance. So the alliance of the British, French, and Americans, the Germans want to lever this apart. And so instead of dealing with an alliance, Germany then is dealing with countries one-to-one. Even after the territory losses in World War I, Germany is still the biggest country in Europe, and when it recovers, it will be the biggest economy in Europe. Germany wants to be able to take apart that alliance, deal one-to-one with smaller countries, and then to start having a discussion about those treaties that ended the First World War. The Weimar government, and I cannot emphasise this enough, never accepted its new borders in the East. It never accepted the validity of the, of the Polish state. It never accepted the idea that Germany should just be in the Germany we understand. They always wanted to reclaim the borders in the East. Okay. And the empire they had in Poland. Basically, World War One borders. Is that what you're saying? Mm. The pre-World War One borders when there was no Poland. Oh, wow. So, Weimar never accepted this. And also, um, you know, back in those days, there were lots of German populations scattered around Eastern and Central Europe outside the borders of Germany. What, what, why was that the case, though? Because, obviously, Polish as an identity goes back to, like, pre-Renaissance period. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. how would they possibly see like Poland and Polish culture being part of their country? 
So in the Middle Ages, you had a thing called the Baltic Crusade, which is where a bunch of German crusaders went into the areas of what's now Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, which were inhabited by pagan peoples. And they conquered and carved out territory. So like it, for all of our European Universalist fans, you Teutonic Knights, this is how they got there. And there was this thing called the Drangnak Osten, the drive to the east, movement of German settlers into the east. So it's kind of like the Crusading Knights go in, they clear out the pagan Baltic people, and German Christians settlers move in behind. Yeah. Yes. And in other places, they were invited in as settlers. So, for example, in the in the borders of what's now the Czech Republic, German settlers were invited in from medieval times to help settle the country. So that's how you get the Sudetenland, which by the 1920s, 1930s, has a German majority population mm-hmm. inside of now independent Czechoslovakia. So we're talking about like re- people who wanted these borders and Polish being part of German and all that. But surely everyone's tired of it by now. Like, what well, we want the war to end. Like, what? Yeah. Why? Why is that such a consideration? Like, why? Why didn't we? Why didn't they just want it to finish? Like, and so that's I mean, enough for fighting. There is a lot of people in the twenties and thirties who did want peace, like international peace. So we already mentioned the League of Nations. So like the idea that you know, countries can resolve their disputes through talking rather than fighting. And in fairness to the United Nations, it uh, League of Nations, sorry, it did. <laughs> it's easy to get so confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah very useless. similar. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, League of Nations did settle a few disputes in the twenties. Like there was a uh, a face-off between Finland and Sweden over some islands, and the League of Nations got that resolved. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah more than the UN's ever done then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But no, so there was like an idealistic move towards peace and disarmament. So in the 20s, you have a lot of disarmament conferences and meetings and discussions. And it's not just like it is today when like when there's a disarmament thing, like it's like six professors and some hippies and Greta Thunberg. <laughs> it's like it was actually like, you know, government. And again, there's a logic to it. There's a connection between the payment cycle and disarmament. Um. So, obviously, the reparations from Germany to UK and France can only be cancelled, which is Germany's aim, to get rid of these things, not to pay them all. They can only be, pans- be cancelled if Britain and France don't have to pay debt to the Americans, right? Yeah, okay. The debt is only going to be acceptable to cancel from the American point of view if the British and French are not immediately going to spend that money on guns. Obviously, if you're a US senator, you're like, okay, we're going to write off the debt. But then the British and French immediately start buying battleships. Like, it, it feels like that's defeated the point, right? Yeah. So, therefore, disarmament agreements and disarmament treaties are essential. And even for the Germans, with this very cynical policy, they want to get the land back. Buying into disarmament, being part of the disarmament discussions, serves a purpose. Well, yeah, because they've got fuck all, and their yes. enemies have got everything, so let them disarm while we don't change anything because we ain't got nothing. Exactly. It brings everyone know, back to this their This is the level. MFO bills thing, isn't it? We're going to get to that. That comes you know, up I was going to say, later. yeah, 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 okay. I can see, see it. Now I can link it to something that I know about. Okay. Yeah. So... Essentially, yeah, like exactly like I say, Germany has, because they've got the shittest hand, they've got nothing to lose. Yeah, no, exactly, their cards yeah. in. 
And it's also going to strengthen them in the future. Again, Germany is the biggest country in Europe, the biggest economy. If everyone's starting on the same level, who's going to win the race? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they supported these American idealists. Fuckers, I didn't realise they were sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, people should not idolise Weimar at all because. Weimar was going to walk in a road that led to demanding Danzig. That's the only way that was ever going to end. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. So, in the 20s, Weimar in, uh, Republic... What's it called now? Gdansk? Gdansk? Gdansk, yeah. So, in the 20s, Weimar Republic supported American F- American-led efforts on, on disarmament. So, like, the big, like, kind of landmarks from this are, like, naval building treaties where everyone agrees not to build battleships and stuff like this. Um, familiar to all of our uh, Hearts of Iron 4 players. Yeah, yeah. So, the so what's the reality of that bill? Like, what was the agreement? Was it, we don't build battleships, <laughs> or do you not... Or do we can yeah, build... Yeah, it was... According to Hearts of Iron 4, the game, it's, you can only build battleships to this size... Yeah, the Washington Naval Treaty established you could only build ships so many up to this size, and there was also a shipbuilding holiday for a certain amount of time, which is why nobody built ships after like a twenty-two or something like that. Okay. Also established a ratio. So the Americans and the British could have five, the Japanese could have three, and the French and the Italians could have one in that ratio. Okay. And it established. This is why you see things like ships being turned into aircraft carriers and all this sort of thing mm-hmm. to try and weasel around it. Basically, the only country that actually followed the letter of the treaties was the British because it limited the weight of the ships. So, what the Americans did was weighed the ships as they were completely empty, not standard displacement. Ah, oh, sneaky. Because if you fill it with men, bullets, fucking ammo, yeah, the ammo just. The weight is different. Yeah. So the Americans snuck around it, and the Japanese basically in the end ended up just building completely, completely ignoring the limits entirely. Like oh, okay. the, the Yamato class were being built behind like walls of iron chains to stop anyone seeing what they were doing. Way off topic. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so the Weimar Republic was supporting American efforts. The Americans are like leading this. Americans are very idealistic in this in this aspect. Um, and Germany also has nothing to lose, and they want to appear to be a good international player, right? Well, they're so, trying to suck up to everyone, I suppose. Exactly. They? And they want everyone to say, oh, Germany is the perfect example. They've learned the ways of, you know, the badness of militarism. They've abandoned that. They're nice, good people now. In secret, they're rearming behind the scenes. <laughs> That's what I'd do to be fair, was a dictator, and you were telling me not to build stuff. I'd be like... Gonna build it in size. So you can't see what you, see what I'm building. You know, yeah. surely there's there's gotta be easy ways to hide things through like bureaucracy and things yeah, like that. Exactly. Surely, to hide it's, from other you countries know. nowadays with drones and like solar eclipses and all the other space shit that's going on. Like, you can... <laughs> did you mean satellites? Yeah, that, I did. <laughs> satellites versus solar eclipse. Get over it. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, all that can... nonsense. Yeah. Like, you take a picture anywhere, anywhere in the world. There's cameras looking at everything. But obviously, back in there wasn't, was there? Yeah, yeah. If you don't have someone there, like taking, you don't know photos, it's happening, do you? You don't know it's happening. Mm. And you could hide it. So, so you know, a clips. Oh, fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, sorry, Ross. <laughs> so you could do things. Like you could set up a shell company, and that company's importing agricultural tractors. 
Except what you're actually doing is you're buying tanks from the Soviet Union. Yeah, I saw about that one. I've seen that before. So this is what Weimar's doing. They're sending like you know military officers into the Soviet Union to go and practice and train together. To practice out their theories, develop their doctrine. So it's like the two international outcasts, the Soviet Union as the one communist state in the world, and Germany as the defeated power of World War One. They kind of work together, and the Germans taking advantage of the fact they can get access to the Soviet Union to go and test their theories. But That's it's mad thought... that they were yeah. like friends for so long. Well, you know, Germany at this point in the Weimar Republic is a democracy, and it's normally led by uh, social democratic parties, more or less. Okay. But there, it's not on a huge scale. We shouldn't get like carried away with how big this is. It's like you know they're. They're testing the edges of the treaty. They're not okay. tearing it up. Um, so, they get agreement from the Americans start to reduce the reparations. So they're starting to go in the right direction. The French army leaves the Ruhr, and the last occupying troops leave Germany in 1930. So Weimar Republic has achieved one of its goals. The occupying troops put in place at the end of World War One are out of Germany by 1930. Okay. Immediately, the Weimar Republic begins planning more rearmament. Mm. So, half a billion Reichsmarks are allocated to the... Uh, sorry. They allocate half a billion to a billion Reichsmarks. Hard to tell exactly how much because they it's all off the books. To increase a force that can be mobilised. So Do you know increase... what that is? Is like an idea of GDP? Like, is that a lot of money? or? Uh, as a proportion of GDP, couldn't tell you, but that's a billion Reichsmarks is 250 million US dollars in 1930s money. But they put this half billion to a billion into increasing the force they can mobilise. So the number of reservists that are ready to be called up. Mm -hmm. It's a way of keeping the army off the books. Versailles has limited the German army to 100,000 men maximum. Okay, fine. 100,000 men. What we're going to do, all of those men are sergeants in waiting. They're going to become the, the NCO corps. Then we're going to call up the soldiers from the base population. Is that what they planned? That's the way they worked. That's why the German army on a squad level was very good in World War Two. Oh wow! Okay. Well, that's you. That's this is some sneaky stuff, man. That's clever yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. as well, isn't it? Like they've really planned that out. And they start accounting to spend on tanks and planes, which they were not allowed to have. But their spending was allocated. That this stuff would be in wartime only. Therefore, they are technically not breaching the side treaty. So they're following right up to the edge of the words, exactly like going line by line, what can we squeeze in? Mm -hmm. But definitely the planning, or even at this stage, just thinking, if we're at war, how can we boost from a 100,000 man army to multiple hundreds day two? Yeah. They begin going in for like work creation schemes. So obviously, like, you know, 20s, they've got to recover from the problems of the economy. But these work creation schemes are always about rearmament it's about keeping the tank factory the factories that can be tank factories the truck factories the cannon foundries the metal working keeping it going so it's ready to rearm okay so the question i've got then is how do we know that they were making a conscious effort to keep the things that can be converted is it just like 
they they purposely made an effort to keep all the truck factories going because they how do we know they because obviously this was new technology as well like how did they know a truck factory could be turned into a tank factory when the tank was a brand new you know what i mean that's what yeah I'm yeah um, or, or what you said generally they kept the engineering section going like you both of these things so it's general keeping the engineering going obviously some things it's very obvious have dual application so steel works obviously it's you know it's battleship armor yeah. plate tanks um germany in world war one produced i think about 40 tanks total the british empire on the hand produced literally thousands of tanks do you know who invented um, the tank out of interest uh the first tank was made by a company called foster no no who invented the tank the person no don't know it was an austrian guy ah i do know that it was yeah you've seen that documentary yeah austrian documentary on netflix it's called like age of tanks or something something and it's not in english but it's dubbed very well in english from german yeah 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 an austrian officer and he's trying to get the austro-hungarian army to go with it and they're like and they're like nah this is useless this is stupid Excuse me while we put my armour on and get on my horse. I don't need this tank. <laughs> what a mad thought, though, considering after World War One, like, the Austrian Empire didn't exist. Yeah. Like, God completely gone. And then they had the, they had the idea first, and the guy yeah. who invented it was like, this is going to... Here's a thing for you. And then... Yeah. We, you know, argued... Part of winning World War One was the fact that we had loads of tanks. Yeah, definitely, like, in... Like an interesting one is the plan for 1919. If if Germany hadn't been defeated in 1918, is the British were like loads of tanks, loads of different types of tanks, and also like APCs and stuff like this to get across no man's land. If, no, if the war had gone into 1919, the British army would have been like a full-on mechanized force. What was um, that? It's the last time we had a good idea, apart from Dida. Um, <laughs> British Army in 1918 is really interesting because I would argue it's the best army Britain's ever had relative yeah. to like other countries. Um, but yeah, so like the Germans were well aware that one of the factors in their defeat was the British and the Allies had thousands of tanks and they had about 40. The Germans had way more captured British tanks than they had German-built tanks. Crazy. They learned that lesson in World War Two, though. Oh yeah. <laughs> Then I think it'd be too much, and it was a bit of a downfall at points. You'd be surprised, but we're going to come to that. Yeah. Anyway, so in the 20s then, so this is the general shape of things, and then the Germans Germans got this good thing going of American loans to pay off the cycle of everything else. And this works fantastically up until 1929, when the global economy goes down the toilet. Oh, yeah. What they call it? Black Monday? Black Monday on Wall Street, exactly, yes. Basically, without going into this, American lenders were over leveraged and it all collapsed and crashed. And basically, Wall Street took out everyone else's economy. Um, the entire global economy went down everywhere. Wankers. It's not the first time they've done it. <laughs> Crazy what that much money can do, ain't it? That's another conversation, yeah. but. <laughs> So everywhere, countries have to start responding to this. And obviously, economics as a science is less well understood in them days. Most con- currencies were still backed by gold, right? So your your banknote represents a value of the gold that's kept in storage rather mm-hmm. than like an abstract. The UK realised they could not support this, so they had to come off of the gold standard. They had to no longer attach the money to gold. This caused 
the pound to lose 20% of its value immediately. Wow. Which is bad if your bank account's full of pounds. Mm. But if you're an exporter, suddenly you've become very competitive. Yeah. Because the currency's not competitive anymore. So it would make sense for Germany to also come off the gold standard for its exports to be able to compete in terms of price, right? Well, they had nothing, did they? They didn't, probably didn't have any gold. They, they still had gold. The money is still backed by gold. Okay. This is why the inflation was so bad. They had X amount of gold and they're producing more and more money, which is worth less in relation to the gold, right? So they're on the gold standard. It would make sense for them to come off and be like a modern currency where it reflects a you know, percentage value of the... I don't understand modern currency. But you know what I mean. <laughs> you were doing a lot of hand actions there. Obviously, they can't, they can't see them, but I could see them. And you did a lot of hand actions which said you knew what you were talking about. I the think more I hand was more enthralled, and then the more I listened, I realised you definitely don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no. Okay, and <laughs> fiat currency, your money is worth something, something backed yeah. by What's GDP. What's money worth? Money is money, and it, it's just yep. we'll trust them with it, unfortunately. Basically, despite what the banknote says, it is not worth that much of the yeah. gold. Anyway, so it would make sense for Germany to come off of gold because it would make their exports competitive. Even in those days, Germany obviously like industrial engineering sector. But if they did that, it would implode their ability to pay foreign currency debt. They owe their debt. Hang in on, US. you're complicated again, mate. Start again. So, so they owe their uh, inflate the interest on their debt in US dollars, right? Yes. If they take the Reichsmark off of gold, it's going to drop the value of the Reichsmark, right? Yeah, from the lesson we learned from us doing it. Yes, which means you buy less US dollars with your Reichsmark than if you did otherwise, right? Yeah. So therefore, to pay your US dollar debt, you must have more Reichsmarks. Yes. So if they come off of gold they destroy their own economy because they have to be able to pay foreign currency debt, right? Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. Cool. So, they ask their US creditors, can we allow the the Reichsmark to float? They say definitely not. The only solution then is deflationary economic policy. So, printing money is inflation, right? Yeah. Deflation means reducing the value of the currency. How do you do that? Hang on, well, hang on. But printing more money does devalue the... Uh, uh, they, they, so they have to... Yeah, sorry. They have to increase the value of the currency to prevent the effects of inflation. Okay. So you get rid of currency to increase the value. Yep. They have to take yeah. actions to make sure the value remains stable, even as things become more expensive. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Wage cuts tax rises, putting limits on price. So you think like in this current scenario, like we have today, inflation's being driven because food is getting more expensive, right? Yep. So therefore the inflation goes up. To counteract that, the way you can do it is you say, you cannot sell bread above this price. If you're a farmer, that is very, very bad news for you because your price is going up and you can't sell for higher. Yeah. But it's controlling how much prices can rise. So, this is what the German government has to start doing. These sort of measures, things to reduce, basically reduce the value of what people had to control what they're spending. This causes 
businesses to start going bankrupt, companies start going under, people start losing whatever savings they have. By 1931, 6 million people in Germany are unemployed. Is that a lot by the... I don't know how many people live there. That's about 10% of the population. Oh shit, that's a lot. Yep. In fact, I think it's... Yeah, it's about 10%. Is this where all the pictures of people killing police horses in the street and eating them, like stealing like flanks off them and stuff comes from? Yeah, I can believe that. I don't know if, which picture you had in mind, but yeah, this is where, you know, like in the you see pictures from the US of people like living in shanty towns around skyscrapers and that yeah. sort of thing. That's what we're talking about here. So, the German government has to start taking actions. There is a thing called the Vereinigter Stahlwerk which is the biggest steel producer in Europe. German government realises they have to buy out the biggest steel producer in Europe and save it if they're going to have any sort of strategic future. Yeah. This whole vision, then, of economic interdependence, of trade cycles between countries, of this flow of cash, out the window. Everyone is now trying to save their own economy, and that means screw everybody else. Yeah. Okay. Inside of Germany, on the political right wing there's debate and discussion should we be doing things like creating jobs should we be doing this deflation um this is where the nazis are starting to become a rising force in the 20s the nazis were like a weird fringe group and Hitler were they called the nazis l- then as well uh yeah so it's an abbreviation from uh national socialist german workers party yeah so Nazi is a nickname reduced from this acronym in German. In German, it, it's NSDAP, so it's National Socialist Deutsche Arbeiterspartei. Okay. Um, they're not a major party in the twenties. Hitler spends several years in prison, which is where he writes his book Mein Kampf. What did he go to prison for? They attempted a coup in twenty-three. Oh, okay. They tried to take over Munich, and then to, to like the plan was take over Munich, and that would be the first step in taking over Germany. Basically, the, the the German army in Munich isn't having any of it, and they shoot them in the streets. <laughs> oh, fucking okay. <hell. laughs> so was so, he just one of them, or was he a he, leader then? He's interesting because in, he was working for the German army after the war, and he was like a basically like a political agent. And his job was to go and infiltrate these right-wing groups on the rise in Germany. We've mentioned before, like, you know, the Freikorps and these dangerous paramilitaries. Yeah. And he was sent to go and infiltrate it. But the thing was, Hitler was a fucking massive nationalist. So he didn't infiltrate it. He became the leader. And they lost control of it. (laughs) Fair play, Hitler. Respect. (laughs) Fucking hell. Please don't get us cancelled. Um... You know what? I'm going around this Hitler idea. <laughs> Sounds all right. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! It's the calls coming from inside the podcast. <laughs> then we can say what we like now because we cleared it for the start, bro. Yeah. yeah. We're about it. <laughs> Not mad. Don't support Hitler apart from when you declare your support for Hitler halfway through. <laughs> Please continue. Um. Yeah, no, I'm going to try and do that. Um, <laughs> so in this general atmosphere of chaos, there's a chap named General Schleicher. Within I've heard the, that name before. 
Uh, he appears in the Hearts of Iron 4 event, which we're going to get to later. Okay, nice. So he's the, basically, more or less the head of the military. Like, his position and title changes, but he's the head of the army in the Weimar Republic. Now, he is a piece of shit. He's, like, <laughs> a major right-wing figure. So he's the effective head of the army, but he also has connections to all of these, like, right-wing death squads going around Germany. Oh, um, okay. Like, the gangs and that. So he's, like, yeah. linked in with the gangs. It yep. seems like a lot of gang warfare. Yeah, 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 definitely. goes definitely. in politics. Is this a thing that's normal for back then? Because, obviously, we don't... Well, no. you say that. Obviously... But there's, like, like, armed groups in the streets. This is a feature of, like, Central and Eastern Europe after World War One. Basically, because, like, central government collapses across the whole area... Um, there's a really good book by I think it's a guy named Tim Paul. It's called The Vanquished, which goes into like the collapse of authority and just like how World War One didn't end. We okay. are gonna do a series on that at some point. Anyway, so he's connections with these right wing death squads. He's using the SA, which is like the street folks of the Nazi Party, as a tool against his enemies. Um, the guy actively wants a dictatorship in Germany. Wants a war in Europe. And he's also like, like the the, he could be a modern politician, man. He's, uh, <laughs> he's just a wanker, basically. Is that what you're saying? Oh, he's like a real, like genuine aristocrat, like okay. nobility. But to appeal to the masses, he puts on this fake Berlin accent when he's talking to try and be like a man of the people. Oh, okay. He's he's like Boris Johnson with a fucking pickle harp, you know. What are we talking about, Mum Boris for? <laughs> <laughs> Save for the UK. <laughs> It was bleached white hair. His <laughs> <laughs> crazy words and his expensive education. His crazy yeah. words, his big belly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he's like actively pushing to breach the Versailles Treaty, rearm, war in Europe, be dictator. He becomes Chancellor of Germany in 1932. So his face will collapse. Hang on, who does? 32. Schleicher, General Schleicher. 32, okay. So... So he's faced a collapsing economy and he's very conscious that he can use military contracts to save the parts of the industry that need saving. That makes that sense, yeah, yeah. Rearmament's going to be impossible if the steel industry goes under. So he starts using the contracts to pump the businesses that need to be saved. Oh. All right. Then, 1932, obviously everyone else is feeling the impact of the Wall Street crash. The UK uh, makes its final payment to the US on its paying its war debt. But other countries like France default. So they refuse to pay their debt. So you remember that cycle at the start. Germany borrows money, pays reparations, pays UK and France. That has just broken down on the UK and France side. They're no longer paying the Americans. Ah, okay, so the Americans are annoyed about this. And <clears throat> yes. So Germany sees an opportunity and they begin refusing to pay reparations. They know that the Americans aren't getting money. But that's only to... F oh, are we still receiving reparations as well? As exactly. Okay. The reparations go to Britain and France. The Germans know that money's no longer going to the US, so there's no longer the pressure from the Americans to make sure they pay their, their okay. war reparations. Germany at this time has debts of 19 billion Reichsmark, of which 8 billion is owed to the US. Because they've leveraged so heavily, they have to pay 1 billion per year just to service the debt. But now, all of those American businesses are fucked. 
So yeah. there's no longer that free and easy credit like there was in the 20s. But the flip side, reparations can be ended because now the UK and France aren't paying, so why pay them? And now also America is in real trouble. You don't need to keep the Americans sweet anymore. So did the Americans never have a plan for this? Was this completely new to them or did they put steps in place because they thought, oh, eventually uh, Germany's going to suss out the, the, the game? Um, I think any plans they might have had went out the window with the scale of the of the crisis in from Wall Street. Like it took out the American economy completely. So any ideas around like you know messing around with politics in Europe just went out the window. They were in survival mode. Everything in the US was wiped out by. So that was like, it, do you think it affected the US more than it? Well, obviously it was yeah, yeah, it was devastating. Yeah, yeah, like the it, Great Depression. In the US, devastating. Is this when all the moonshiners and bootlickers come out and all the? Uh, that was earlier in the twenties. Actually, this is where that ended. Oh really? Or, like they couldn't yeah, afford yeah, the like, bullets. <laughs> people couldn't afford the drink, but also like you know, like when you're in like, Al Capone in your silk suit in the in the twenties, okay, it's cool. But in the thirties, when everyone else is living in a dirt village, yeah, dirt farmers, dirt farmers, like <laughs> literally, like the Americans had like um. So obviously, like, business collapsed, industry collapsed, but also they had an environmental disaster at the same time, and literally, like, all the fertile soil in the Midwest just blew away. Uh, what, 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 what's that about? Uh, it's called the Dust Bowl. Basically, the had Dust this... Bowl? I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Dust Bowl, yeah, I've heard yeah. that. So basically, where they Brief, ploughed... Quick, well, I know it's completely off topic, but just fill us in, last because we're all interested. Yeah, yeah. So, where you had, like, you know, the Great Plains, they'd started putting this under the plough, right, and farming it. Yeah, but the thing was the soil was really loose so once they started working it it just started blowing away in the wind after a few decades and literally like states well, that's like, why we have our hedgerows <laughs> you know what I mean it stops no that's why we have hedgerows is it okay that's why we have hedgerows around farms to stop the, du- the, the soil blowing away okay but like so they may have emigrated from here but they didn't learn how the hedgerows work did they they must have not had a hedgerowsman that went over to the Americas and uh, taught that's them how the to do issue. It. Not like, yeah, your hedges aren't up to standard. <laughs> but no, so it's like you know, the first time this land's ever been ploughed, and like after a few decades, it just started blown away. Yeah, okay. And then people started, you know, fleeing the land to go to like California and places. Oh, so basically, they'd set up all this agriculture over probably, I'd imagine, like five seasons of gone from nothing to heavy agriculture, and then they've had this. Yeah, exactly. There must have been like a high wind event or something that's happened that than normal. Because yeah, you're not going to build up that sort of level of industry over what, what yeah, without a season going by, are you? Yeah, so I mean, like, they've been ploughing the Great Plains for like maybe 30, 40 years at this point. And then so it's not very major's long. happened. And, and then okay. a bit of weather change. and It just is like a perfect storm of events coming funny, funny how it links back to our previous season, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Systems collapse, it's actually a thing. Um, speaking of agricultural crisis, though, so do we come back to Germany? So yeah, um, any plans the Americans had for event of like Germany defaulting went out the window with the scale of what happened to the U.S. Like America was devastated by the depression. Mm-hmm. In Germany, one of the consequences, amongst all these other things going on, so six million unemployed, everything else going on, another thing that happens is that agricultural prices collapse. So farmers can't sell at profit anymore, right? 
Now, this is bad in Germany because in Germany, 25% of the population still works on the land in 1932. Oh, that's a big amount of your population then, isn't it's it? It's a lot. And most Germans had farms that were so small they could barely sustain a family. Ah. Yep. And then suddenly the prices all collapsed. So... They're not having a good time out of that, are they? They're not, no. Out of this, there emerges kind of a consensus on the political right, which is three policies. Number one, saving the peasants. Number two, escaping from the foreign debt. Number three, rearmament. Now, the Weimar Republic is a democracy. It has free and fair elections, with the big asterisk of every single party has its own street militia shooting <laughs> yeah. each other in the street. Spit of gangs of New York a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And like, like you know, I mentioned before, it's not just the communists and the Nazis, everybody. The liberal parties have their own street militias. Like, can you imagine if the liberal Democrats had a fucking armed street <laughs> militia? Vince Carvel leading the way. He ain't even the leader anymore. That's how, that's I know, but imagine he's about. old though. The new guy is not that old. Who's it? Hang on, who's it now? Ed Davey. Sir Ed Davey. Sir Ed Davey, yeah. But he's old and uh, a lot to imagine. For the he's... very confused foreign listeners, the Liberal Democrats are the third or fourth party in the UK. And third? I'd the... say third. They were third party. Above the SNP? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, but we're talking about English parties here, mate. Okay, so the Liberal Democrats, <laughs> they're the third or fourth party in the UK and basically their policies are about owning a beard and being a vegetarian no and uh other things as well <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that about the smp though but i bet they've took a hit haven't they yeah they have a bad time they've took a hit they're having a bad time so third or fourth you're probably correct anyway um so yeah so every party has its own street militia so the elections even in the best of times are a little bit chaos a little bit violent well, there's that there's that uh, scene on streets of New York, isn't there? Uh, the, sorry, gangs of New York, where it's like election day and they're all fighting outside for the ballots. Yeah, I bet a lot of that. that I bet that was rifles, like isn't it? It's like that. So, in the in the election of July 1932, so obviously in this context, everyone's losing the job, everything's shutting down, everything's going crazy. You can't afford food anymore. The Nazi Party becomes the largest party in the right in the Reichstag. Now, unlike the US and the UK, Germany does not have first-past-the-post voting. It has proportional voting, so your share of the vote is how many seats you get, plus-minus. They get 37%. Second place is the Social Democratic Party, who have 21%. This is the kind of the high watermark for the Nazis as an electoral force. Massive swing, kind of out of nowhere, pretty much. They've been around, but they've been like a 10% party so it must have been uh going hard on the old advertisement also that and like you know the whole like uniform street marches and all that sort of shit yeah. they're present you feel their presence on the streets and also their media game is good i'd like to add this is all off the back of italian fascism as well isn't it um yes the nazis definitely take inspiration from mussolini but Mussolini was never winning elections. Mussolini took power through like street violence, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they borrow their tactics because Mussolini's fascists were using street violence to kind of take control of the of the local level politics. They're taking inspiration from this, the Nazi brown mm-hmm. shirts. 
Um, so the government at the time, you have in Germany, you have a president and a chancellor. So the president is a guy named Hindenburg, who was the First World War general and national hero. And there were a disaster getting... named after him. There's an airship named after him which had a disaster. There we are. Yep. So he's the chancellor. He's a First World War hero, but he's getting on a bit. And the chancellor, so the prime minister equivalent, is a guy named Franz von Papen, who is the leader of the like ma- main conservative party, like normal conservatives. <laughs> Not Nazi conservatives. Yeah. <laughs> but my problem you have to make that distinction. Yeah. So basically, Hitler would expect that he would become chancellor on this vote. He's the single biggest party. Hindenburg and von Papen basically cook up a plot. They bring in a whole bunch of parties to make sure Hitler does not become chancellor. Smart they, they knew Hitler was dangerous. They knew he was going to be an issue if he got near power. Yeah. So they cooked up a new government, loads of different factors, and that government lasted the grand total of four months. And it collapsed well done, in good November. F- yep. How did that so, collapse? You've got everyone was... involved. Just too exactly. Many, too That's many the Too many. Too many chefs. Oh fuckers. So that collapsed, and there has to be another election in November <laughs> of the same year. This time, the Nazis get thirty-three percent. So you see, the vote is actually on its way down. General Schleicher, our f- f- uh, shithead friend from the previous section. He basically weasels his way into becoming Chancellor. He gets Hindenburg to appoint him as like emergency Chancellor. Okay. Pushing von Papen, the leader of like the Conservative Party, out of the way. This is going to come back to bite him later on. So, Schleicher becomes the uh, Chancellor going into 1933. Now, an important thing to notice then. So, at the end of 1932, momentum is moving away from the Nazis. The vote share is decreasing. Internal government reports and the international international press are reporting the German economy has stabilised. The Social Democratic newspaper, I think in January of 1933, celebrates like goodbye to Hitler. Because they they think he's on his way out. Von Papen, though, the guy who'd been forced out by Schleicher, is pissed. And he cooks up a plot with Hitler... Oh, what a nubbed. I saw yep. this coming. I saw this coming. And he, he speaks to Hindenburg as well, this nationalist former general, and they cook up a plot. They know that Schleicher is going to face a vote of no confidence. So, Papen's plan is he's going to support Hitler to be the Chancellor, Papen will be the Vice-Chancellor, and Papen and Hindenburg are going to control Hitler together. So, Schleicher goes to Hindenburg, asks to have an election, form a government. He says no. The military and the farming lobby back the Nazis. And this is how Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. Oh, Doesn't win an election. It's an internal plot and he's placed in power. From somebody who already knew Hitler was dangerous. That's when you said earlier, I knew like, oh, he was lucky to get into power, I was like... How was he lucky to get into power? But he literally was, by the sound yep. He was put there as a puppet. And he's exactly, managed to yeah. wriggle his way out of being a puppet to being a cunt. Exactly that. People thought they were going to control him. Oh, man. And they underestimated him. What a dickhead. 
<laughs> and we'll leave it there for this time with the Nazis about to Ooh, take power in Germany cliffhanger you left us on there bro oh yeah oh nice I feel like this is a very much a this is the pre-sequel to what's yeah. about to the fucking the shit that's about to start kicking off yeah so I mean I think it's important to have the context of how did the Nazis come into power because I think that's one of the big mysteries like of how do so many people that, honestly I you've you've put such a different turn on to what I think would be the mainstream view obviously you've got you've got the general public view and then you've got like oh a historical mainstream view what most people know about it but you've thrown a lot of that out the window to be honest with what you've said because I think most of the stuff does blame the Versailles Treaty on yeah. everything it, it, almost everything I've seen blames the Versailles Treaty and I don't know how, but you seem to have completely disproved that with this this new numer. Like, where where's this come from? Like... Uh, yeah. So I realise I haven't mentioned my source. So my main source for this series is Adam Tooze's Wages of Destruction. Adam Tooze, where's he from? Uh, he's a Adam Tooze. He's a British British uh, economist. Okay. And basically, this book has completely rewritten the way we understand Nazi Germany. Always, oh, and most people have took this on, have they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This well is like accepted. well accepted. It's been a revolution. Um, some of the other stuff I'm going to mention as well, like some of uh, Richard Overy's ideas about imperialism. But I think that's the main takeaway from this: is you know that pop culture history. Every fucking History Channel documentary always starts with, "Oh, the Versailles Treaty." Yeah. What a mistake. No. The Germans went in with the firm intention they were going to wriggle out of paying for the war, and everything that came as a result was them trying to avoid the consequences of World War One. That's a smart strategy, though. That like, if I was going to start a war, I'd be like, "We'll pay for it afterwards." Because if we lose, we ain't got to pay for it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if the if like, the war as a, as a, happen, being a wanker, like yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. The, that's the sense, isn't it? Like, well, let's just borrow against it because we ain't got to pay for it if we lose. Yeah. If the Wall Street crash didn't happen, Germany definitely would have used this American economic to leave for part of the thing, and then they would have started using the League of Nations to start questioning their eastern borders and try and get back that territory with German populations. No doubt about it. Yeah. Well worded, mate. <laughs> what? I'm happy with that, then. Oh, well, I suppose we'll leave it there, and we'll leave it on that little cliffhanger, and where we're going to pick up next week. So next Ooh, time we're going to talk a bit about what the Nazis believed, what their ideology was, and their ideas, and then what they did as a government. So, I mean, we've already busted one myth, which is Versailles caused the Nazis. It didn't. The other myth, and I'm sure you've heard this, was the idea along the lines of Hitler was a good leader, and then he went crazy. <laughs> So what we're going to do... I like him, he's alright, you know. (laughs) Maybe he must be all lies. He sounds fucking like a fairly square-headed chap. Yeah, so to give him his fair due, (laughs) next week we're going to have a look at Germany in peacetime under Hitler. What were the Nazis like as a governing power? Mm. And we're going to see, is it true that Hitler made Germany great again? Did he recover the economy? (laughs) Well, we all know now what what we put up for that he obviously didn't. But I think a lot of people will say to you quite happily, like, oh yeah, I've Hitler's heard that before. Great. I have definitely heard yeah. that before, that he was a great leader until that. I've definitely heard that before. Like, so he did a lot that. for the Nazi economy. Yeah, exactly. 
So we're going to address that okay. claim. We're going to look at Germany in peacetime under Hitler. Think you know it all, do you, Ross? I do. Look at me, my chair of fucking knowledge. <laughs> I do actually, yes. You'll find out at all. <laughs> right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been Thank a good you one. Very much. Season one. No, season two, episode one. We're back on it. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Bye.